Amen. You can be seated. All right, I want to welcome everyone this morning. And we are glad that you are here today to worship the Lord with us. I especially want to welcome this morning the fathers in the room and want to wish happy Father's Day to you. I know this is a joyful day for many of us in the room this morning. And it's also a painful day for some as well. So I want to make a few comments this morning. Painful because your father uh, was a good dad and maybe your father is no longer with you. Or painful because you wanted your father to be a good and a godly dad and your father was not that for you. And so Father's Day can be a painful reminder of life in a fallen world. And so if you're feeling lack today in any way, that relates to your father, I want to remind you that one of the promises of the gospel is that God will father you. He will father you. He will be a father to you, a faithful, loving, never failing father in heaven to all who trust in Jesus Christ. And I want to share this verse with you this morning. This verse has brought me comfort many, many times in my life. Psalm 27, verse 10. This is the promise of the gospel. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. But the Lord will take me in. Our God will fill whatever gaps, whatever lack, whatever deficiency, whatever sorrow or pain that, you, that you're feeling and experiencing this morning. God will be a faithful father, a perfect father to all who trust in Jesus Christ. So I want to hold that promise out to you this morning. And I want to encourage you to press in and trust the Lord today. Anyone experiencing pain this morning. Brothers, God has given many in this room the joy of fatherhood. It's a wonderful privilege to be given these souls to, to bring up, to love and to lead. Or in the words of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, children to uh, discipline, to bring up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This is a wonderful privilege that God has given many in this room. And it's also a weighty stewardship that falls upon us as fathers. Our job as fathers is to imitate the Father who is in heaven. So I look around the room this morning, I see many brothers whom I love, and, and I want to express thankfulness to Christ all across the room for your leadership in your family, for the love that you have to your children, for the ways that you lead your family, provide for your family, and bringing up your children, and the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are thankful for the many, many godly examples that we have in the room this morning. And we pray that Father's Day would be a reminder to you, each of you, to press on and to do so more and more and more. We're going to pray for you in just a moment, the fathers in the room, that the Lord would greatly help you 
to faithfully follow Him as you father your children. And so we're going to pray for the dads this morning in just a moment. As we gather this morning in the name of Jesus, as the church of Jesus to worship the Lord, I want you to consider one of the sweetest words in Scripture this morning. Just one word I want you to think about as we head into this time of worship, time of prayer, time of exhortation and instruction through the Word of God. I want you to remember, think about, and just let it sit in the front of your mind this morning. And that word is come. C-O-M-E. One of the sweetest words in Scripture. And specifically to the members of Grace Community Church this morning, I want you to remember that before Jesus ever tells you to go, He invites you to come to be with Him, to come directly to Him. This is your God. This is Jesus Christ. He says this morning, He says to all, come, come to Me. This is His his invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come this morning. Will you do that? Will you hearken to this invitation to Christ Jesus? Come to Him. John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says this, If anyone thirst, let him come to Me and drink. If anyone thirst, let him come to Me and drink. And that's exactly what I want to invite you to do this morning. You came to church, and that's good, today, but I want to invite you to come to Christ, and that's better. Come to Jesus. Don't allow this time that we have gathered in His name to fall to the ground in vain this morning. He invites you to come. Let's come to Him. Let's drink from Christ. Let's come to Jesus. And we're going to do that together even now. As we enter into this time of prayer, we're going to pray together. We're going to come to Christ. So I'm going to pray and I invite you to join with me this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And Lord, we have a great need this morning to know you according to your word. We need it so desperately, Lord, reminders of who you truly are, not who we fathom you to be, but who you reveal yourself to be. Lord, you are the great God of heaven and earth. Please help us to know you this morning as you truly are. Lord, who among us this morning in this room can stand before the consuming fire? Not one of us, Lord. Who among us this morning could could dwell in the midst of everlasting burnings? And that's what you are, Lord. You're the consuming fire. You're the fire that never stops burning. 
And none of us can stand before you, Lord. Your greatness is above the heavens. Help us to see it. Help us to know you this morning according to your word. Lord, you are the God of Isaiah 6, and we come to you this morning, the living one, the exalted one. You're the holy one of Israel, the one whom sinless angels hide their faces from your matchless glory, and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Lord, we come to you this morning, the matchless God. Lord, you are the God of Mount Sinai, the one who thundered from the heavens to your people Israel, and you said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You're the one who spoke with such power and authority and majesty that your people begged Moses that you would never speak this way again. They feared they would be consumed in a moment. You're a great God. Your word says, how great are your thoughts toward us. How vast is the sum of them. And Lord, we repent this morning. And we say, how small are our thoughts of you, O God. How small are our thoughts of you, O God. How little do we tremble in your holy presence. How little do we know, Lord, of what you revealed yourself to be in your word. You're the God of glory. Lord, we come this morning in the name of Jesus and we ask, Lord, that you would restore the sense of wonder, Lord, to you, the living God, that there is none like you. That there are no works like your works. That you are greater than all who are around you. And Lord, we appeal to your mercy this morning. We ask that coldness would be driven far from us. Lord, how unfitting of a response to the Holy One of heaven and earth. Any sense of boredom, any sense of coldness, Lord, drive it far from us. Tear the scales away from our eyes this morning and help us to worship you, Lord, high and lifted up with the train of your robe filling the temple. Lord, we ask that fervent love would fill the hearts of your people and your disciples and that lukewarm love would be cast far from us. Lord, help us this morning. Reveal yourself. According to your word and matchless glory. Lord, it's an overwhelming thing that the high and lofty God of heaven and earth would condescend to save sinners. That you have loved us, Lord. Lord, nothing humbles us like these thoughts. That you came for us from the high and holy place. That you sought us out, not in the midst of our obedience, but in the midst of our rebellion. You came for us. We turned our back on you and you came for us, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would restore a sense 
of the glory of your grace, the matchless glory of your grace. And we pray to you this morning as your church, and we ask you to do the thing that you love to do, Lord, more than anything else. We ask that you would glorify your name in your church. Glorify your name in the midst of your people. We bear your name, Lord. We ask that you would manifest yourself in our midst. Lord, we pray that prayer of Elisha, your servant, when Elijah was taken up to heaven and he struck the waters and he prayed, where's the Lord God of Elijah? Where's the Lord God of power? Where's the living God of heaven and earth? The one who raises up kings and lays kingdoms to waste. The God of history. The sovereign God of authority. Lord, you are the living one. High and lifted up. And we ask, Lord, that you would manifest your power and your authority in this local church. Show yourself to be who you are, Lord. Be the living God in the midst of your temple. Lord, we thank you for this Father's Day, for time to reflect, for time to give thanks, Lord, for fatherhood. And all around us, we look in this culture of crime, this culture of upheaval, this culture of oppression, and all around us, Lord, we see fatherlessness, fatherlessness, unfaithfulness. Unfaithful fathers all around us, Lord. And yet you're the living God. And your command is to fathers to bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Lord, we come to you today and we ask, Lord, that you would fill fathers with the Holy Spirit. That in the midst of a godless generation, that you would make us faithful men of God to lead our children, to love our families, to obey your commandments. Lord, we pray for the fathers. Reveal yourself to be the living God, the one who pours out power, the one who enables obedience. Lord, we pray for many of these fathers in the room. That you've charged to godliness. That never had a godly father. Lord, we pray that you would fill that gap in their life. That you would train them. That you would disciple them. That you would teach them your word. Their father and their mother may have forsaken them. But Lord, you will take them in. You will take them in. You will restore the, the, the years that the locust has eaten away. You're a God of redemption. A God of restoration. A God of revival. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would restore faithfulness in our land. Faithful fatherhood in our land. And we plead that promise at the end of the Old Testament, that you would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Do that in our day, Lord. Be the living God, the one who reigns in heaven above. Lord, we pray for the children that you've given these fathers in this local church. And Lord, our desire is not that 
we would serve you in vain. Not that we would obey you in vain. Lord, we pray the prayer of Moses that you would establish the work of our hands as fathers. That you would make our fathering and our parenting effectual, Lord. That you would make our love and our prayers and our instruction and our provision for our children effectual unto salvation, eternal salvation for these souls. And so we lift up these children to you this morning. And we pray, oh God, save. Save them, Lord. Tear out the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that loves Jesus Christ that hates sin, fill them with great desires to obey you. Lord, we ask that you would rescue them as a brand plucked from the fire. Lord, save our children, we pray. Answer our prayers this morning. God, we pray that you would make us faithful to call upon you until you answer us. Reveal yourself to be the living God of salvation in this church. Lord, save our children, young and old. Lord, nothing is too difficult for You. Lord, we come to You as a local church this morning, and You have placed us in the midst of a present evil age. According to Your will, We are to be people of light in the midst of a world of darkness. And I pray for this local church this morning. Lord, help us to bear the cross. Lord, in the midst of this world of darkness, help us to bear the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, specifically, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. Help us to bear the scorn of the world. Forgive us, Lord, for all the places in our hearts where we desire the praise of man, the acceptance of the world. Help us this day to remember your promise, Lord Jesus. You will be hated by all for my namesake. Lord, you call us to deny ourselves and to follow you. Lord, help us as a local church to cast aside our reputation. Forgive us for desiring the praise of man in any way or the acceptance of our culture in any way. And help us to follow You, Lord Jesus, to follow in Your footsteps and to bear the scorn of the world. Lord, we ask this morning that You would renew our zeal to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow you with the world crucified to us and us to the world. Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers today. That you would act from the right hand of God, Lord Jesus. Like the king in Esther's day who lifted up that royal scepter And and Esther, your servant, was granted her request by the king. Lord, grant our request this morning. You are the living God. We do not desire to pray in vain. Answer our prayers, we pray. Exalt yourself as the living God in your church. And we ask that you would hear us this morning 
In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and let's worship the Lord together this morning.
This song that we're going to sing now is new to us. It's, it's called, Oh Lord, My Rock and My Redeemer, which is taken from the end of uh, Psalm 14, where the Lord is called My Rock and My Redeemer. We're going to sing through the first verse twice to help us to learn it, uh, but let's worship God.
can turn in your Bible to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Do you remember reading the book of Jonah, or at least hearing the story of Jonah when you were a kid? The story of Jonah and the... <laughs> the great God of mercy. Don't let the whale steal the show. Story of Jonah. I remember hearing the story... Uh, as a child, maybe in a children's storybook or something like that, but I remember reading it for the first time when I was 20 years old, when I was converted, and I remember thinking, man, this is not like what I saw in the child's storybook. You, know, you think about what you hear, the story growing up is a story of a prophet that was told to go preach the truth in Nineveh, and he disobeyed God, and of course, because he disobeyed God, he's swallowed by a well, he's vomited up on shore, and he's given a second chance. Go preach to Nineveh, and he goes and he does it this time. And then a ton of people are, are delivered, they're saved from God's judgment through Jonah's preaching, and then that's the end of the story. Everyone lives, you know, Jonah's happy, and everyone lives happily ever after. But if you read the story, you know that that's not the case. But instead, the book of Jonah is about a bitter and nasty prophet that remains a bitter and nasty prophet literally to the very end of the book. What you see in the book of Jonah is that Jonah would rather die than go preach to the Ninevites. In fact, in the last chapter, which is often the chapter that's cut off, in the last chapter, he, he, three times he asked God to kill him. Because of what God had done in delivering the Ninevites. So we're going to be in the book of Jonah right now. I want you to, um, if you had some of those ideas of Jonah before, just the, the children's storybook version, I want you to erase that. And let's think through what this book, what this book is all about. Now before we read it, I want to mention a few things that, uh, that show the uniqueness of the book of Jonah. One is that this, this prophet, it's one of the books of the prophets, and yet it's not about the words of the prophet, as all the, as all the other ones are, the actual prophecies that those prophets spoke, but rather it's about the life of this prophet Jonah. We get very little of what he actually said. We see something about the life of the prophet Jonah, which makes it unique among the prophets. It's also a very backward story. When you read this story, you've got the prophet of God seems to be a horrible person, but you've got these pagans like the pagans on the ship when Jonah's on that ship that actually shows some, uh, some noble character and being unwilling immediately to, to kill Jonah. Or you see the Ninevites, these pagan people that have nothing to do with God, that have false gods, and yet they repent and they turn to the true and the living God. So it seems backwards that the prophet of God, the man of Israel, is the ungodly one, and the pagans seem to be those that fear God. It's a very unique book. It's also unique in that, I don't know if you realize this, but it's very provocative, okay? So you imagine if you're one of those original readers, you're, you're an Israelite, 
reading the book of Jonah, your representative, your fellow Israelite, your prophet, your representative is the horrible person, whereas the pagans are the good ones. This would provoke you in some sort of way. It's very provocative. It's much like Jesus uh, telling that story of the Good Samaritan, if you remember that. He's looking at the Jews and he has this story where the priest and the Levite are the, the, the ones that have no compassion, the one that passed the man by, and yet the hated Samaritan is the hero of the story. That would be very provocative, a very provocative story to tell. And Jonah, the book of Jonah is provocative in a very similar way. So we're going to read the entire book together. Have you ever read an entire book of the Bible in a Sunday gathering? Well, you're going to do it today if you haven't. I'm going to read a chapter, and I'm going to make a few comments, and I'm going to read another chapter and make a few comments, and my goal is just to try to help us see the plain sense of what's in this book, to understand the flow of thought and the story that's found in this book. So let's read chapter 1, and I'll make a few comments. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall, we, what, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard 
to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay on us, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words and for this book. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see you and your glory in it. Help us to see Christ and his glory in it. Help us to be moved, God, to obedience and and mercy and love and all the things that you would do with us in this book. God, please do it for the glory of Christ. We're your people, Lord, and we we want to be made like you. Use your word, God, to... Cut and comfort and convict and everything that you want to do, God, please do it with your word now. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the book of Jonah started off with God telling Jonah, you can read it here in verse 2, these words, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, that same phrase... The same command to Jonah to go to Nineveh is going to be repeated right in the middle of the book in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, as Jonah gets his second chance. So you can sort of cut the book in half in that way. Now, why does Jonah disobey God? According to chapter 1, why does he disobey God? Why does he flee from the presence of the Lord? And at this point in the book, we don't know. We don't have an answer to that yet. We'll get that answer when we get to the last chapter In chapter 4, but as it is right now, we just know that he's disobeying God, rebelling against God, and fleeing from his presence, but we don't know why. Now, a couple of side notes here. One would be the foolishness of disobedience. It says here, it says it twice, that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that foolish? Doesn't this disobedience lead you to do really, really foolish things? You can't flee from the presence of God. This is the same thing Adam and Eve did. Just think about the foolishness that sin leads you into, that Adam and Eve are hiding themselves from the presence of God. You can't hide from God. He's the omnipresent one. Another little side note from these first three verses is is Jonah is called right here to go into Nineveh. He calls it an evil place. Go into Nineveh and call out against it. Warn that place. Man, don't you think that would have taken some boldness, some courage and boldness to go into an evil place and warn that place of of judgment and of its sin? And I think one thing we can be reminded of in that is Grace Community Church. God calls people to do things like that, things that take courage, things that take boldness. Grace Community Church, don't become too sophisticated in this life. To where you can't see yourself going into a wicked place and offering up the judgment of God, warnings about the judgment of God, and to call people away from their sin. God calls prophets to do this. 
He caused people to do this. And so, Jonah's on a ship, fleeing the presence of the Lord. He's on a ship with a bunch of pagans, and he's headed to Tarshish. And so what does God do? God raises up a storm in this place. Here he is on this ship, fleeing the presence of God, and God raises up a storm in this place. I love the verse, Psalm 83, verse 15 and 16. It says, it says this, pursue them, God, pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they might seek your name. So we see God doing this, bringing about fear and shame on these people by raising up the tempest, by raising up this storm. And I love the way it says it, the wording in verse four, it says, and the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, just like skipping a rock across a river. God just skips, skips a mighty storm across this sea and it has contact with his ship and scares these people to death. So the pagans on the ship are panicking. Jonah's asleep in the boat and the pagans start casting lots. Now I love this. Just like you've got God who's sovereign over the storm, you've got God who's sovereign over the casting of lots. Even these pagan polytheistic men casting lots. God's sovereign even over that. You know, it says that in Proverbs 16.33 that the, the lots cast into the lap, but it's every decision, it's every decision is from the Lord. So I love that. God's controlling even the, uh, the dice throw of the pagans in order to expose his man. He's going to expose Jonah. And so God exposes Jonah through the casting of lots. So the pagans begin to ask Jonah what to do. What do we do? And it's interesting that literally Jonah would rather die than obey God. Jonah didn't say, here's what we got to do. Turn the ship around, take me back because I got to go preach to Nineveh. He says, cast me into the sea. Jonah has no plans that a well or a great fish will pick him up and help him survive. He doesn't know that. He's saying, kill me. How can we stop? The pagans say, how can we stop the storm? Jonah says, cast me into the sea and just kill me. He would rather die than repent and obey his God. The pagans respond nobly. Uh, they don't immediately throw him overboard. Uh, they, they keep trying to row and make it to land. And when it's their last ditch effort, there's nothing else they can do. They throw him over and a little revival breaks out on the ship. Well, these people, these pagans offering sacrifices to the one true God and praying to this God. Sweet little revival on the ship. And Jonah seems to have his wish, death. I get to die, and I don't have to go to Nineveh and do what God told me to do. But, as you see in verse 17, God intervenes. <laughs> so he thinks he has his wish, just, just kill me now, just cast me into the ocean. And verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days in three nights, Jonah's plans were interrupted. God, it says here, appointed. I love that. God appointed this great sea creature. He appointed him to pick him up and to take him somewhere else. All right, chapter 2. Let's read this chapter. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... 
Now here's Jonah's prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And thus ends his prayer. Verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, as far as Jonah's life is concerned, this is sort of the, you know, his brightest moment. This is his brightest moment in the book. You see a beautiful prayer to God of deliverance and thankfulness. He's, he's calling out to the Lord and giving him worship. You're the God of salvation. He says, so this is the brightest moment in the book for Jonah. It says verse 2 and 3, verse 2 and 7, excuse me. You look at verse 2 and 7 and you get the picture that as he's being tossed into the sea, it's like like Jonah has second thoughts about, you know, I'd rather die than obey God. And he begins to call out to God in his distress. It says there in verse 2. And and in verse 3 tells us that, He attributes him being cast into the sea. He attributes that to God. He didn't blame it on the pagans. He didn't blame it on the storm. He knows that that storm was from God. And that him being cast into the sea was from God. So his troubles are from the Lord. That's what he says in this prayer in verse 3. This deliverance that happened where he's swallowed up by the great fish. Verse 6 and verse 9 tells us that he attributes that great fish and that swallowing up and that deliverance. He's still alive. He attributes that to God's deliverance. And he roots all of it, verse 8, he roots all of it in the steadfast love of God. So this is a bright moment. Oh God, your steadfast love. I'm coming to you with thankfulness and sacrifices. You're the God of salvation. Look what you did. You delivered me, God. It's a bright moment in the book of Jonah, at least for, for Jonah here. But we don't need to overcook it. Because when you read chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're going to see him um, reluctantly doing what God says. You would too. You got swallowed by a great fish. Okay? So he's reluctantly doing what God says. And then we're going to see him still dealing with the same sinful heart that made him flee from God. The same sinful heart is there. He is unrepentant in his sin and in his rebellion against God. And of course, you got to love verse 10, right? The great fish vomited him. This is, this is uh, second chances for Jonah when he was vomited out by the great fish. And here's this great God that gives a second chance to him. 
What a sweet thing to know about our Lord. Now, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, here it is again, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. All right. So here's Jonah. He's, you know, he's still got... Great fish vomit on him, okay? And God says, go back to Nineveh and preach the message I tell you to preach. So he goes into Nineveh. Now, this, this city, what is, what's, what's going on with this city? Look at verse 2. Excuse me, uh, verse 3. It says, so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh, so this, this Nineveh, he keeps calling it, in, in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he calls it a great city. In chapter 3, verse 2, he calls it a great city. What do you mean a great city? He doesn't mean like it's an amazing city. He's talking about its size. Look at it. Into the city, the exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Chapter 4, verse 11 is going to call it that great city that has 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left. Chapter 1, verse 1 calls them evil. So this, this city, Nineveh, is a, it's a great city in the sense of a, a massive city with a ton of people that are walking in evil. These are evil, evil people. And Jonah's told to go there. Now he preaches, if you look at verse 4 here, he preaches what seems to be a pretty pitiful message. It's, it's literally, I believe it's five words in the Hebrew. It says, yet 40 days and Nineveh should be overthrown. What a message. Yet, imagine they coming to the city. Yet 40 days and the city will be overthrown. Now, some people believe that that's just sort of a, a, a summary example, but not everything that he said. Uh, but some commentators lean more toward 
Um, he, he's giving you the bare minimum here, okay? We know he's still sore at heart. We know he's still walking in his sin. He don't want to be here. He don't want to see these people respond. And so he just gives the bare minimum. 40 days and the city is going to be destroyed. And so how do these pagan people, this wicked city, how do they respond? How do they respond to the preaching of Jonah? The scripture tells us they respond with repentance. That word repentance. Now, you don't have to flip there, but Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, that's exactly what Jesus said. Listen to what he said. Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh, words of Jesus, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So how did these Ninevites respond to the preaching of Jonah? Repentance. They repented. What we read about in chapter 3 is the example for us of repentance. You say, what is repentance? What does repentance look like? What what does it look like when a people repent and turn to God? What does it look like? Well, read read Jonah chapter 3. What does it look like? We see right here in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. They, what does it look like? What's your repentance look like? It's Godward. They believed in God. They trusted in the God that Jonah preached. Repentance looks like not only Godward faith, but, but it looks like here humility and brokenness over sin. It says it three times. They called out for a fast and they put on sackcloth and ashes. It repeats that. Even the king is putting on sackcloth and ashes, this uh, symbol of humility and brokenness and uh, uh, humbleness over their sin. They want to turn away from their sin. This is what repentance looks like. They believed in God, and they put on sackcloth and ashes. You can look at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. This is what repentance looks like. They believe in God. They're humbled in their, in their state, their sin state, and they call out mightily to God. And then maybe the clearest description, you keep reading there. In verse 8, it says, let everyone turn from his evil way. Repentance. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand says it in verse 10 when God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way what they do at the preaching of Jonah repentance they turned from their evil way they turned towards God cried out to him believed in him this is this is the example of repentance and so then how does God respond to them it says here that God relented in verse 10 God relented from the disaster that he said that he would do to them. So God responds with mercy. When they repent to him, God responds with mercy and with pity and love and forgiveness. It's God's response to a repentant sinner. Now, chapter 4 could be a good place to end the story, right? But God doesn't do that. Look at chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry and angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So, the Ninevites, chapter 3, the Ninevites repent, and Jonah's happy, and everything's happily ever after, right? Wrong. It says here in verse 1 that Jonah is displeased. He sees that happen in Nineveh, but he's angry, he's, dis, he's displeased, he's not happy with this. And then finally we see the reason, from the very beginning we see the reason that Jonah disobeyed God. That's what he says there in verse 2 and verse 3. This is the reason, this is the reason, God, that I fled from you when I was in my home country. This is why I did it. And then he gives the reason, and he begins to talk about God's grace, and God's mercy, and God's love, and God's forgiveness and the fact that God is the kind of God that's willing to relent from disaster and judgment and he says that's the reason do you get that so why did Jonah flee from the presence of the Lord he knew that his God is the kind of God that when he preaches to Nineveh if Nineveh repents these wicked people if Nineveh repents his God is the kind of God that forgives that shows mercy and pity and since he knew that, he did not want to preach. Why? He fled from God. Why? Because he did not want those people to be saved. He hated the Ninevites. Why did he flee from the presence of the Lord? Jonah hated the Ninevites. And he did not want them to be pardoned for their sin. Now, before you judge Jonah too harshly, 
You say, how can you do that? How can a man hate a people so fiercely that you don't even want to see them experience God's mercy? How could you hate them so fiercely like that? Before you say that, you need to understand that Jonah had some reasons uh, for, hating, for hating the Ninevites that would have been, in a way, justified. If you look at biblical history about the Ninevites, you especially read the prophet Nahum, who, who writes a book this, to the Ninevites, the judgment on the Ninevites. Or you can look at secular history during even this time. Uh, uh, I was looking at this thing called, if I'm saying it right, the Lashish Reliefs. So something that's in the, uh, a museum in London. And it, and, it, and it gives you some insights into this time and what the Ninevites were like, and specifically the Ninevites' relationship with the Jewish people, with the Israelites. And what we find out is that these Ninevites were horrible. And not only horrible people, but horrible to the Israelites. We're talking uh, severely mistreating them, uh, raping their women, there's records in those reliefs in, in London of th- them skinning these people alive, murder, human trafficking, kidnapping these people, taking them to other places. I'm talking about horrible stuff. This is like you being a, 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 maybe a Christian tribe somewhere there in Erbil, Iraq, and this is ISIS, okay? So think, think ISIS. Think, think German Nazis. Like he, he hates them, but he doesn't just hate them for no good reason. He hates them because these people have been so hateful to him and his people. There may have been people in Jonah's family that had died, been murdered, been mistreated and tortured and taken away by the Ninevites. He hated these people. And so when God says, go preach to them, he says, no, I don't want to do that because you're a God who forgives. You're a God, verse 2 here, who shows Mercy, a gracious God. And so we see his hatred. Now, we read this book, and, and you know, if you had this question, can God or, or will God, can God, will God forgive a wicked people like that? Again, remember, Ninevites, think ISIS, okay? Can God forgive a people like that? Will he? And it's, it's really interesting that Jonah knows that he, he will. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, steadfast love. He knows that he will. But that's exactly why he flees. He feels no pity. Think about the last verse we just read. Should I, God says, should I not pity these people? And he feels no pity for these people. And so the story could end here. Could end here. God saved these people. Look at how wicked Jonah is. <laughs> look, at, or, or look, at, look at Jonah's hatred. He didn't even want him to be saved. That's why he left. The story could end here, but it doesn't. Why? Because the story is not just about God saving a wicked people. It's about him working on Jonah's heart. And so as you keep reading, you see in verse 4, the question that's asked is, do you do well to be angry? God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And you notice that Jonah doesn't answer it. He doesn't even answer God's question. Do you do well to be angry? Instead, verse 5 and 6 says he goes and he, he makes a booth east of the city. He sits there and he's just waiting, it says, till, till he should see what would become of the city. So he's just sitting there watching the city. You know, maybe it was a fake repentance. Maybe they'll turn around and they'll rebel against God and God will pour out his judgment after all. So he's just sitting there waiting, wanting to see these people judged, not delivered. 
You get verse 6 through 8 here. God begins setting Jonah up so that he can re-ask the question. So, so here's Jonah. Imagine him sitting there watching the city. And it says that God caused a plant to grow up over his head and make him comfortable and give him shade. Isn't that nice? So he has that for a day. And it says, and God causes a worm. He appoints, it says he appoints a worm to, to eat at this plant and kill it. So the, the plant withers and dies. And Jonah's upset again. And then God appoints this east wind and the sun and the scorching east wind is beating down upon his head, making him weary and tired. And then God sets him up like that. And then he asks him the question again, as you see there in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? So he, He's already asked him, he didn't answer. Now he's going to ask him again a little different way. Do you do well to be angry right now for this plan? And then we look at verse 10 and 11, and we see God drawing him in, okay? So, so, so Jonah says, yes, angry, even to death. He has to be killed again. Yes, angry, even to death. And he draws him in with this comparison in verse 10 and 11. You pity this plant. Jonah, you're pitying you're pit, pitying this plant that, that you didn't have anything to do with, that grew up, and that's it. Should I not pity, verse 11, should I not pity this 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left? You see what he did there? He stirred up in Jonah this pity for something much less valuable. It says, you're pitying that. How much more valuable are these 120,000 souls, and yet you're angry that I'm pitying them? That could be done in a lot of ways, right? You could look out in our culture and maybe somebody has some uh, pity over, um, I don't know, an animal, a puppy, a puppy somewhere. And so you pity that, but where's your pity for a lost soul? Where's your pity for these unreached souls? What are you doing? It's the way that he sets them up here. And in verse 11, and this is very important that you catch this, verse 11 is a cliffhanger question. He just, I mean, think about it. He asked the question, verse 11, and, and it just, the question just hangs there. And it's, it goes unanswered. Jonah doesn't answer it. God doesn't answer it. It's this question. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And it just sits there. Should I not pity them? Jonah, you're angry. Should I not pity them? And then the book just ends. It's very important that you see that with this cliffhanger question, okay? What's the main point of the book of Jonah? What's the main point of this entire book? It's not be like Jonah, obviously, right? Hey, here's an example of the life of the prophet Jonah. Be like him. No, don't, that's, you don't want that. So that's not the lesson here. It's not even this. It's not even when God tells you to go do something, you better go do it. You better go obey him. And that's true. But that's not even the main point of the book of Jonah. Let me attempt. This is just my attempt. Best I got to give you a thoughtful one sentence answer. This is the point. This is the main point of the book of Jonah. Here it is. The book of Jonah is an exaltation of the mercy of God to the undeserving and a rebuke 
of our lack of mercy to the undeserving. It's an exaltation of the mercy of God to the undeserving and a rebuke of our lack of mercy to the undeserving. So let me just try to say that in a couple different ways to see if you get what I'm getting at, okay? If you understand it as a comparison, as a comparison, the book of Jonah is comparing God's mercy toward the wicked to Jonah's mercy toward the wicked. And all of us that can relate with Jonah. Or if you think of it as a correction, if you think of the book of Jonah as a rebuke or a correction, it's like this. Look at how hateful and unmerciful Jonah is towards the evil, towards the evil people, especially compared to God. Look at how evil he is. Don't do that. Don't imitate him. There's a little Jonah in us all. Or if you took the book of Jonah as an exhortation, it would be, look, look at God's mercy on the wicked. Look at that and imitate it. Brothers and sisters, imitate God. Did you see his mercy, his pity on the wicked? Now, let me quickly tell you, here's why, here's, here's why I understand that to be the main point of the book. I'll just give you three quick reasons. Here's why I say that's the main point of the book. One, one theme that runs throughout the entire book, all four chapters, is God correcting and dealing with Jonah's sin. Chapter 1, verse 1 to the very last verse. We've got him sinning, God called him to do something, him sinning at the very beginning, and at the very end is him, should I not pity these people? So God, uh, God is dealing with Jonah's sin all the way throughout the book. It's a theme through the book. And so once you figure out what his sin is, then you begin to understand the main point of this book and what's his sin. He has no pity, no mercy towards these people that were so wicked. He hated them. He was unlike God. Number two, a second reason to understand it this way is thinking about the way this book would have dealt with the original readers. Okay, uh, imagine you're an Israelite. You know you're you're reading this, and 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 as Israel, you're supposed to be a light to the nations. You're supposed to be a light to the pagans, and yet they too, like Jonah, they can relate with Jonah. They understand where Jonah's coming from. They too would be tempted to hate these Ninevites, to despise them in such a way that they'd be undesiring, that they would even receive the mercy of God. They would only want them to have the judgment of God. And so this book would mess with them, right? And in Jonah, the Israelites would see themselves. And they would be rebuked. Hopefully they would be rebuked. And so... When they see the crooked stick of Jonah, especially laid right beside the straight stick of, of God's mercy, they're feeling the rebuke because they can relate with Jonah and they want to be more like God. And then third reason, probably the clearest, is that cliffhanger question at the end. So why, why do I say this is the main point of Jonah? It's about God's mercy to the wicked. Why? Well, think about that cliffhanger question at the end. It's very, very telling. Okay? It's meant to emphasize something. Should I not pity? I know you don't want me to pity them, Jonah, but should I not pity these 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from the left? Should I not do that? It's, it's, it's meant to mess with you as you read it. Should God do that? And should I be like God or should I be like Jonah? Now, let me give you just a few takeaways. Um... Some things I want to encourage you to take away from this book and understanding the main point of this book. Number one, 
This is the most, the most obvious takeaway is this. Exalt God for his mercy. This is the God that if you knew how evil these people were, people that have skinned his people alive, and yet God's willing to show pardon and mercy, forgiveness, and love. God's mercy towards ISIS. What in the world? What kind of God? So exalt him for his mercy. This is his mercy towards Jonah. Jonah, this racist prophet. And he's showing mercy towards Jonah. He shows mercy towards us. Exalt God for his mercy. Think about how, how much pity he has shown us. So I think that's one obvious response. You know, this book, this book of Jonah, there, there's a sense in which, according to the New Testament, there's a sense in which Jonah is meant to be a shadow of Christ. Okay, we saw that in that passage I read a moment ago. Let me read that to you again, or at least part of it. Matthew 12, it says in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, exalting the mercy of God, there's a sense in which you're supposed to read the book of Jonah and, and you see Christ in it. That Like Jonah was a messenger to the wicked, so is Christ. And like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so was Christ, dead and buried in the tomb for three days and risen from the grave. You're supposed to think of the mercy of Christ. And yet, obviously Jesus is not just like Jonah. It says in verse 41, second part, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, listen to this, Matthew 12, 41, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. How are they different? Yeah, Jonah went to preach to the wicked, but Jonah went reluctantly, not our Savior. You understand that? That Jonah goes reluctantly to preach to the wicked, and he doesn't even want them to believe and be saved and be rescued. But Christ is not like that. He's not reluctant to save. You know, sometimes in the Scriptures you get insight into those those sort of triune conversations between uh, the, the three persons of the Trinity, and you kind of see insight like Psalm 110 or Psalm 2, where they're speaking with one another, and it'll blow your mind. And if you ever got insight, if you get insight into those, uh, uh, those conversations, what you never will hear, you never will hear this, is the Father saying, I want to save him, and Jesus going, I don't want to do it, Father. The son's not saying, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go. He wants to go. He's mighty to save and eager to save us. The only moment we saw where Jesus was reluctant was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it wasn't because he didn't love us. It's because he knew that when he went to that cross, he was about to have the wrath of his father poured out on him in our place. That's the only reluctance. And yet even then he says, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And he moved forward to the cross in love. Jonah's a reluctant preacher, not Christ. So when you think of Jonah, think of the mercy of God and think of the mercy of God found in Christ. Second takeaway would be self-examination. Self-examination. Do you have any Jonah in you? Do you have any Jonah 
in you? Is there any hatred in you or unforgiveness in you towards a person or towards a group of people? Any kind of, any kind of uh, bitterness that you have towards a person or a group of people, they would, they would get your heart in a place where, where it hinders you from even taking the truth to them. You don't even have pity. You don't desire that they would be rescued. Do you have any unforgiveness, hatred there? That's some very, very dangerous stuff. Brothers and sisters, if you have that in you, you better deal with it. Matthew 18, Jesus gives a parable of a servant that spoke to a king, and the king forgave his servant, but then that servant turned around and choked out his fellow servant, and, and the king sent him into eternal torments. This unforgiveness, this bitterness, this hatred, it's very, very serious. So we read Jonah, and we say, we examine ourselves and say, do we have any Jonah in us? And we repent. Number three, brothers and sisters, please know God's unwavering pursuit of your sanctification. He, he is unwaveringly devoted to his people's sanctification. Okay, I want you to understand, understand what I mean by that. Why, why doesn't the story end at chapter 3? Because it's not just about saving the Ninevites. It's about doing something in Jonah's heart. God is devoted to him in that. He's devoted to our sanctification. I want you to think about as you remember through the story we just read. Think about the providences of God that God unloaded on Jonah to turn his heart back. It says he hurled a great storm onto the sea to turn his heart back. He guided the, the, the lot casting of the pagans to turn his heart back and expose him. He, he appointed a great, a great fish and caused him to vomit him up on the land in order to deal with his heart. As you read at the end of chapter 4, it says that God raised up this plant just to give him temporary comfort, just to take it away the next day and give him more bitterness, just to work in his heart. It's the providence of God. I mean, it says he appointed a worm. Even the worms. And God uses all those providences that, 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 he, that he uses to work a work in his people's heart. And I want you to know that about us. Philippians 1.6, he who began a work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He is devoted to your sanctification. And he will, use, he will extend all providences to conform you into the image of Christ. It's the reason Romans 8, 28, 29 says that God works together all things, all things for the good of his people. Why? That they might be conformed, verse 29, to the image of his son. They might be conformed to the image of his son. And last takeaway, I believe this story, it's a challenge to us as it relates to the mission of God. The story is a challenge to us as it relates to the mission of God. And there's several things we see here. We, see, we obviously see God's heart of mercy towards the lost and the wicked. Uh, even unreached people group, 120,000 here, don't know their right hand from their left. We see God's power to save in chapter 3. As Matt, it, it says, the people turned to God, the king turned to God. It even says the cows were fasting. I don't know if you caught that. Everybody's turning to God. It's God's power to change a people. But here's the challenge, okay? What is it that hindered Jonah? Just think about that for a minute. What is it that hindered? Jonah was hindered in the mission of God. What hindered Jonah? 
Now, it's encouraging that God doesn't, God doesn't need anybody, okay? Wicked man like Jonah doesn't even want to see him saved, and yet he's preaching it anyways, and God's using it. God doesn't, that's encouraging, but I don't want to be like Jonah. I don't want to, I don't want to be opposed to the will of God, okay? So what did it? What hindered Jonah? And, and I want you to think about this. So often, as it relates to a person, a Christian, or a church being hindered in the mission of God, it, it's a hindrance in sound theology, Right? They, they don't have sound doctrine. They have a small little gospel or a small little God. They don't have that all nations God that takes the gospel to unreached people groups. So often that's the problem. Maybe they're weak in their prayer lives. They don't know how to pray to God. But listen, don't you think about it. We just read this book. That's not Jonah's problem. Jonah's a man that understood sound theology. He understood God to be the gracious God, merciful, loving kindness that relents from disaster. He's literally quoting Exodus 34. We see Jonah's a man that's not weak in prayer. You read that prayer in Jonah 2, and it's a prayer of thankfulness to God. He's even thankful for his own deliverance. So what's Jonah's problem? Problem is he doesn't pity these people. His problem is he doesn't love these lost souls. And pity them like God does. So what can hinder us? This is the challenge. What can hinder us in the mission of God? Grace Community Church, do you love the lost? When you think about those that don't know their right hand from their left, a city like that, they don't know their right hand from their left. Left Is your heart full of pity? You can even use an example in our culture, right? They don't know the right hand from the left. Listen, your culture doesn't even know what a man is or a woman is. Your culture doesn't know that. When you think about that, are you only filled with hatred or do you pity these lost souls? So that it makes you like God want to go to them with a message of warning, with the truth, that they might turn to God and be saved. What about the nations? Do you pity them? Lost souls, lost unreached people groups on this earth, do you pity them? And so what we know from the book of Jonah that a lack of love, a lack of mercy and pity towards lost people, towards the lost world can hinder us in the mission of God. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you, be full of love. Ask God to give you that and to make it increase more and more. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book. Beautiful truth and convicting words. God, we praise you and worship you for your mercy. We were those, Lord, wicked and going astray that didn't know our right hand from our left, and you sent Christ to save us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for mercy. God, I pray that you would make us merciful like you. Fill our hearts with pity for the lost like you, Lord. God, examine us, Lord. If there's any hatred in our hearts or unforgiveness or bitterness, God, that that makes us like this man, please, God, I pray that you would purge it from us, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. Make us clean. Make us like you. God, I pray that we would be a people that that yes, God, have sound theology, and yes, Lord, are thankful for our own salvation, but God, please, don't let us lack in love for people, for mercy and pity for lost souls. Don't let us be lacking there, Lord. 
Make us like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing the doxology. Praise God from